the uh, we're so grateful for your your word, your truth, your your written word, and your word that walked this earth uh, for providing us with Jesus as our our message, our message of salvation, our message of reconciliation, our message of sanctification, our message of redemption, uh, our final word. Um, Lord, we want you to teach us from from him this morning and um, allow your Holy Spirit to, to pry open our hearts and our minds uh, to be able to receive it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so in the, the narrative of Jesus' life, we are here on the other side of the triumphal entry. We are in the opening of Jesus' Passion Week before his crucifixion. You've probably noticed and I've referenced the fact that John is very... Uh, specific with the things that he chooses to highlight, uh, he will present a narrative in which he pretty well explains very succinctly Jesus' rejection by the Jewish people and then enters into the night before his uh, arrest and crucifixion. Whereas the other three Gospels go into Jesus' teachings through the Passion Week, through um, his time on the Temple Mount and, and uh, being questioned by Pharisees and Sadducees and, and things like that. John cuts all that out and gets to the point of Jesus' rejection by the Jews. And, but here today we, we hear of Jesus' final teaching, if you will, of what John shares to the crowd and to his presentation of the gospel. Um, And so we'll just kind of catch you up. Jesus has been, after raising Lazarus from the dead and then issuing into the, the Passover season, he's anointed by Mary in the home, in a home in Bethany. We have seen Judas's heart exposed as he is angry about this anoint, this expensive anointing being used in this way. The crowd is triumphant as it welcomes what they believe is their coming Messiah into Jerusalem, but they have expectations of his kingdom being started now and immediately. The rulers are blind to anything but their own anxieties of their power and being taken away from them and, and their economic benefit being removed uh, from this Passover season. And the disciples are unaware about Jesus' coming sacrifice, as John tells us. We weren't aware of these things until after he had been glorified, meaning he had been dead and resurrected. And we've been looking at chapter 12 as setting the stage for our redemption. And these verses, which are a part of our passage this morning, have been central for us where Jesus teaches whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it 
for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will, be my, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. These verses can seem confusing, especially because of the hyperbole that Jesus uses to contrast a life lived for God's purposes and a life lived for self. Um, hyperbole is interesting. I, I saw on the cover of a journal in the man cave this past week downtown that said, hyperbole, it's the best. You know, it, hyperbole is, is an expression of extremes in order to get a point across. So, uh, Jesus is using a literary device that helps to make the stark contrast between serving Christ and serving ourselves with our lives. You know, we're reminded this past week of how someone could despair even of their own life when we heard about Robin Williams' death by suicide. How could a person who loved so much to make people laugh feel so dark inside? But we know that that's not uncommon at all. In, his mov- in the movie Dead Poet Society, Robin Williams made a poem sort of famous called, O Captain, My Captain. It pits the joy of the celebration, the poem does, the joy of the celebration of a ship coming back into harbor after victorious battle against the loss of the crew's beloved captain in that battle. And the poem says, O captain, my captain, our fearful trip is done. The ship has weathered every rack. The prize we sought is won. The port is near, the bells I hear, the people all exulting. While fellow eyes and steady while follow eyes the steady keel, the vessel grim and daring. But O heart, 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 the bleeding drops of red. Where on the deck my captain lies, fallen cold and dead. You know, we move into this section in which Jesus is informing his disciples of the cost of following him, their captain. But for all of the 11 of his disciples, for all of them but one, This will mean a martyr's death following their captain. For all of his followers, even today, it will mean dying to themselves. We know that our captain lay dead only three days. And so ultimately, following him leads to eternal life. I wish that Mr. Williams had known this truth. When life is lived for serving our almighty, eternal captain, no pain or loss goes without growth or purpose. So we move into our verses this morning. We're looking at verses 20 through 36. We start out with an interesting kind of turn of events in in verse 20 where it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now by the feast, they're talking about Passover. 
And they're talk- when they talk about Greeks, they're not necessarily actual people from Greece, but Gentiles, Gentiles who were God-fearers who wished to be a part of Passover, and they could be a part of it as close as the court of the Gentiles. But any closer than that, they couldn't come closer than that to the temple. And they're called Greeks because Greek was the predominant language of the modern world at that time, and the Greek culture was the predominant culture of the uh, Gentile world at that time. So calling them Greeks was a general term for referring to them being Gentiles, non-Jews. So we see in verse 21, it says, So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, John has already said in our previous verses, we didn't know what was going on until after Jesus would, had been glorified. John is it's somewhat unique to John to talk about Jesus' death and resurrection as his glorification. But that's what's being referred to here. And it's interesting because how many times have we heard Jesus say or John say his hour had not yet come? You remember back in chapter 2, Jesus' mother uh, uh, encourages him, asks him to perform a miracle with, with wine, water to wine at a wedding. And that's one of the first places where he says, my hour has not yet come. Uh, but here is the first time in John where Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, John's gospel has referenced the Gentiles that Jesus would save in the future. In John 10, 16, we're told that Jesus has other sheep, not of this sheep pen, referring to the Jews, that he must bring in as well. In John eleven fifty two, in answer to Caiaphas' prophecy, John writes that Jesus would die, would not only die for the Jewish nation, but also for the scattered children of God, referring to the Gentiles that would come to know him. We've talked about how when someone is thinking that Jesus came only for the Jews, that's when in John's writing, it would go into saying that we're we're told that he is for whoever would believe in him, regardless of ethnicity, Jews and Gentiles together, whoever would believe, that's the only requirement. By the time John writes his gospel, the church is in full bloom in the Gentile world. His Jewish readers are fellowshipping with Gentiles. His Gentile readers were glad that they were included in God's plan for the body of Christ. But this doesn't happen until after Jesus is rejected as the Jewish Messiah, making him the final Passover lamb. And I'll I'll explain how in some ways this passage here, all of our verses, specifically Jesus will reference this opportunity to present himself to the Gentiles. This passage addresses Jesus' choice to go to the cross. 
This is where we see Jesus following his father's will into death. And also the fact that following Jesus leads to our choosing to die daily as well. To lead into his teaching, Jesus draws from an earthly principle of farming. And that earthly principle is that the death of a seed results in fruit. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, into the earth and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. The natural principle here is that sometimes fruit requires sacrifice. This is actually a common rabbinical teaching that Jesus is referring to, except except the rabbinical teaching would have been, uh, listen, what you do on this earth in sacrifice to the Lord, it's going to reap much more reward in eternity for you. Um, it's actually a writing from the writings of the Sanhedrin. We find this written, if the grain of wheat which is buried naked sprouts forth in many robes, how much more so the righteous who are buried in their raiment. So this is, that's, that's a, um, just a Jewish teaching, if you will, but, but Jesus is referring to his death and our benefit, and his glory, and, the, and the, God, the triune God's glory from it. So this was also a religious principle of their day. We see Jesus moving from this earthly principle into an eternal principle here. And that's for the follower of Christ, dying to self leads to a fruitful life. In following him. So following his example. And we see in verse 25, where Jesus continues to teach in these verses, and we'll be looking at these. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, he says. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. The first point that I want you to see 
in our passage this morning is the call to follow Christ. And these are the verses, as I said, that have been kind of the focal, uh, well, they've, they've been kind of the central idea of our chapter 12, that whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Real quickly, I, wanna, I want you to see the connection with or the argument within these two verses between life, the life that is eternal and following Christ. First, we see that life is found in serving Christ in these verses. And we see also within them that serving Christ means following Christ. We're not serving him if we're not following him, following his example. Where did Christ go? To his death and resurrection. This is, is as close as John gets to where the other gospels quote Jesus as saying, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We also see the connection here that serving Christ leads to being honored by the Father. It leads to eternal life. This is not talking about earning our salvation. Jesus is talking about the eternal quality of life that we should be experiencing now through following him. As we've seen John talk about that before. And we're not experiencing an eternal quality of life. We can know what the problem is. We're treating these days on earth as if it is my life to live. That's the insight we gain here. Jesus is not calling us to hate life. He's not calling us to hate living He's not calling us to a, this world's just going to be awful until we finally get into his presence. He's calling his followers to seek, to see the stark contrast between living for ourselves and living for his kingdom. I believe that the secret to understanding his statements here lie in the terms that Jesus uses here for what English simply translates as life. You see, there's two, the, the term here for life, his life loses it, whoever hates his life in this world. This term that he's using here is different from this term. When he talks about the one who loves his life or hates his life, he's using the term suke, okay? It, it, it more describes what constitutes my life what flows from my soul, what flows from my heart. We'll see actually later here when Jesus says, my heart is troubled, he uses this same term, my suke. Okay? It's what makes us unique, if you will. But it's also what would be the source of the self-driven life, what I need, what I'm longing for, what would complete me. It's actually where we get the term psychology from. The study of the psyche, the suke. 
And oftentimes in modern day secular psychology, the question is, what's suppressing the real you? Who do we have to blame for why you can't come out and show who you really are, live out of who you really are? Jesus is saying, the person that tries to drive themselves forward, the person that tries to live their life will lose it. This term for eternal life is zoe. It just means life. It means living. It means they'll, it will keep it for an eternal type of life that just has no end. In addition to this, I think the key is in seeing the contrast uh, highlighted in the possessive pronouns here. Notice the follower of Christ needs to hate their self-driven life. It's, it's seeing it as their life. The one who loves his life loses it. The one who hates his life, seeing it as his life, will keep it for eternal life. It's in, do I possess it as my life? What we understand this to mean on our side of the cross and resurrection is what's taught in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Jesus Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. I think of the Starship Enterprise. Okay, do we have any Star Trek fans here or familiar with Star Trek? Okay, you know, I won't get into the first generation, next generation, that sort of thing, that whole debate. But many people think, think of your life as being like the Starship Enterprise from Star Trek. Okay, think of like your life being that spaceship. Okay, many people think that receiving Christ as their Savior means I've let him onto my ship. Okay? And maybe they give him charge of a certain area. All right? Uh, They might allow him to be in charge of the engine room, if you will. You know, he's my strength. He's the strength of my life. He gives me strength. You know, okay, I was going to do some sort of Scotty impersonation, but we'll skip that. Um, (laughs) Or maybe I've got him in charge of the sick bay. He's where I go when I need help, when I'm just kind of out. Or uh, he's in charge of the cafeteria. I go to him every day of my life for encouragement and to get refueled. Maybe we've even got him on the bridge of our ship, but he's our navigator, right? He gives me direction for my life. Jesus belongs on the bridge, and those Star Trek people would understand this. He belongs with the calm. Okay, that means in the captain's chair, in command. It's intended to be his ship. We know how that works. The, cat, the one that's sitting there, all of a sudden, it's his ship. 
Regular repentance allows me to be reminded that I'm supposed to be losing my life, that I'm supposed to be getting out of the chair and giving it back over to him. I'm supposed to be out of that captain's chair. He's supposed to be sitting there. For those of us who are married, we wake up with the opportunity to get out of the chair every day. We wake up with the opportunity to die to ourselves. What a difference it is when two people do this. How sad it is when we claw and scrape for what we think should be ours. And the other side of the marriage bed becomes enemy territory. We're called to see our spouse as an opportunity to live for Christ every moment of every day. I loved the quote that was shared by the speaker at the men's conference where he was sharing the insights from a man who had been married for over 60 years. <clears throat> and it said something like, <clears throat> excuse me, something like this. A successful marriage is a matter of dying every day and experiencing resurrection power. When we add children into the mix, we get opportunities to die to self and live for Christ that seem to run on their own independent power source. When they're supposed to be winding down, they're winding up, right? You know, I have to admit, last night I told one of my sons, you know, I'm just done. It's time for you to go to bed. You know, and he, you know, looking back over this, I realized, okay, what I was saying there was, I've given enough. I've hit my max. I'm done. But the beauty of that was to turn around and say, Lord, let me die to myself. Let me die to myself. There are opportunities. We have opportunities with kids to serve the Lord when being asked why all day long. But our intentionality to live for Christ and our confession of failure when we fall short prepares the next generation for glorifying God. But I'll tell you this, sadly, our refusal to see our home as a place that teaches us to die to ourselves just causes the Sunday school stories to fall on hardened hearts because mom and dad don't really seek to live it. It's not about being perfect. It's just about realizing I'm not and I need to grow. And this home environment is the perfect place for that. We serve Christ's body, the church, and it never runs out of needs. Never. If you ever ask yourself, will there ever be an end to the ministry that needs to be done? The answer is no. But if it just kind of simply goes on being done, someone else is doing it. This is because the reason why it never runs out is because being a part of the body of Christ is about attaching yourself to a group of fellow broken people who will forever be giving you the opportunity to die to yourself and to die what you might have had planned for Saturday. It's an opportunity to grow closer to him. It's an opportunity to follow Christ. 
We don't have a Lord who simply sits on his throne and commands us to sacrifice our lives. We don't serve a general who sits, simply sits on a hill watching his soldiers from afar. We have a Savior who says, follow me in dying to yourself. And you'll also follow him in, re- in living resurrection life. And we see that in verses 27 through 33. The example to follow, it's Christ. These verses that follow are sort of Garden of Gethsemane for the Gospel of John. John does not describe much of the Garden of Gethsemane. He doesn't quote Jesus as the other Gospels do. It doesn't mean he doesn't believe it happened. Of of course, John is writing for a different purpose. The other Gospels go into that moment of Jesus saying, Lord, if it be your will, please have this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Which is the, if you fall back on any patent prayer from the Bible, that would be the one. We see him, though, in the same way in these verses, deal with the temptation to bypass the cross. When he says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Again, when Jesus says, my soul is troubled, it's the same term, my suke. My, my, my heart, my life, the temptation to make this my life. Jesus ignores the temptation to live out his own life. But we see his desire to glorify the name of the Father. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says, Should he ask the Father to spare him from the cataclysm that was so rapidly approaching? Had he done so, he might have averted seeming disaster at the price of failing to achieve his redemptive purpose. But Jesus adhered boldly to his original purpose of completing the mission God had entrusted to him. His resolution was final. He wanted the Father's name to be glorified no matter what the cost. And then we read as it continues, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And then these sad words, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. A 17th century pastor writes about this and he says, it was a monstrous thing that the multitude was obtuse to so plain a miracle. Some were deaf and caught that God and caught what God had pronounced distinctly as a confused sound. Others were less dull, but yet detracted greatly from the majesty of the divine voice by pretending that its author was an angel. But the same thing is common, meaning the same thing happens today. God speaks plainly enough in the gospel, in which there is also displayed a power and energy of the Spirit which should shake heaven and earth. But many are as cold towards the teaching as if it came only from a mortal man. And others think God's word to be a barbarous stammering. 
as if it were nothing but thunder. End quote. <clears throat> as a blessing for us, it's Jesus explains what the crowd is missing. That Jesus would gain the victory as planned, even as all will appear to have been lost. So as Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John writes, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Now describes uh, here a few things that are going on in this moment. First of all, man's separation from God will be dealt with in Jesus' crucifixion. This will take place as the sky grows dark and what seems like the triumph of all that is evil over God's Son. But instead, it will mean the wrath of God being poured out on His Son that will enable us to be set free from sin and from Satan. That moment that Satan, I believe, thinks that he has won will turn into his destruction and the time bomb will start ticking on his rule. We're told also that Jesus' death by crucifixion is what he's speaking of in terms of being lifted up. Now, <clears throat> the term all <clears throat> in Scripture, that it can mean all as in everyone on the face, you know, everyone, everything, or whatever category it's describing, or it can mean all kinds. <clears throat> when Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself, he's saying, I will draw all kinds of people, vis-a-vis you Jews and the Gentiles as well. All kinds of people are going to be drawn to me when I am lifted up. And it's through his crucifixion that Jesus will draw them. And these kinds will include Jews as well as Gentiles who desire to speak with Jesus, as these do. And remember, it's their seeking him that sets off this teaching section. And these ideas of our example being in Christ of losing his life and by that gaining the victory. Again, we see that in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We see in Romans 6.6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We're taught throughout the New Testament that we are called to follow the example of Christ in his death and resurrection. Much of chapters 13 and 17 that I can't wait for us to get to and move through as a church will be about what it looks like to follow Christ. Immediately we'll be thrown into the upper room. And Jesus will open this section of the gospel by washing his disciples' feet. And then telling us to follow his example. And then he'll talk about what 
what we should be for one another. He'll talk about the fact that the, the unbelieving world will know that we are his followers by our love for one another. He'll talk about the spirit that is coming, that we have now, that will be there to minister to us as his followers follow him without his physical presence among us. All of those chapters 13 and 17, I look forward to as we look at this as what have we been given to follow Christ now? How have we been called to follow Christ together as a body? But in this moment, Jesus is giving us an example to follow in losing his life and gaining the victory. And he's saying, remember, follow me. It's kind of like... um. You, in those movies where you've got a, an airplane full of paratroopers, and most of the women are like, I don't watch those movies, so you're going to have to explain this to me. Okay, you've got this airplane full of paratroopers, and you've got the leader toward the back, and the green light comes on, right? And that means it's time to go. Okay, and so the leader stands up and gives final instructions to them, and then he jumps, and the others are expected to follow his lead. So in verse 20, this Gentile inquiry into uh, wishing to speak to Jesus, this is set up in much ways like the green light. With this signal, it's like Jesus stands up, turns to those who are following him, and gives some final words. And then he jumps to his momentary death and eternal victory. And if we claim to be following him, we will do the same. Seek to die to ourselves, looking toward eternal victory. I mentioned last week that there's some brands of Christianity that basically believe that we have enough faith in Christ, we won't actually have to live like him. And I think that we try to avoid discomfort. We all do this. We... we, we try to avoid a change to our plans of achieving the American dream. But following Christ means looking at our lives before us and planning how we might glorify Him at sacrifice of what we might desire otherwise. May mean missing opportunities for worldly achievement or or promotion in order to follow God's will for your life. It may mean watching your friends be, be cool and popular while you're living out how you know God desires for you to live. It might mean not saving for retirement the way that you want to because you're investing in eternity. Or because paying the expense of maybe an adoption in order to care for an orphan that God cares deeply about gets in the way. Where are you following Christ into death to yourself? Can you think of anywhere? Well, as, as we've seen happen so often, Jesus closes his teaching, calling the Jews to believe on him for salvation. 
We read in verse 34, So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then we read, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. While you have the light, let's walk. While you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And then we have this haunting statement. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself himself from them. And we're going to look next week at what seems like a contradictory idea that Jesus on the one hand is saying, believe in me, believe in the light. But then in the next verses, if you have your Bible open, which I hope you do, next verses you'll see there where it, it describes how the Jews' rejection of him was fulfillment in the fact that it was said God would harden their hearts. How do those two work together? We'll deal with that next week, as best as I can at least. <clears throat> but you know, like, like this, this question from the crowd that Jesus doesn't even deal with. He's like, we're, we're past that in John's narrative here. Like Israel's iron dome keeps Hamas rockets from hitting the ground, we see the, we see the Jews' religiosity keeping Jesus' teaching from being able to penetrate. They want to talk views of the Messiah. They're puzzled over how their thoughts of the Messiah could be off or or what they've been taught. But Jesus turns to the nuts and bolts of the moment. Calling Jesus the light points to the fact that he himself is the truth that overcomes the darkness of lies. We've seen this again and again In the Gospel of John, light and darkness talked about. He also warns those around him that the time is coming to a close. He challenges them to take advantage of the truth while it is standing right there before them, while they can. And we see this beautiful truth that taking the step of putting our trust in Christ allows us to become what he calls here sons and daughters of light. You know, Matthew 5, 14, Jesus tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. And we take him as our savior. We are intended to take his mission as the purpose of our life. Following him. And I want to tell you, I can't pass by these verses without feeling that the same, the same offering needs to be made. It, you know, and just like, like what I said, these Jews in all of this teaching could be sitting there going, well, can we talk about this over here? Because that, that was, 
That's interesting because I don't interpret Isaiah in that way. You know, he's like, you need the gospel. And the fact is, you can sit in church all of your life and it just not getting through. But if this is a morning where you're just sitting there and you're like, okay, wait a second. I have sins that I cannot make up for on my own. They separate me from God completely. And I'm getting this. Jesus died and my sins were laid on him so that I don't have to pay for them. And he rose from the dead so that I can live without having paid for my sins myself and I can live with him. I need that. Let me tell you, just like Jesus is saying to these people, while the light is before you, receive it. Go to him. Say, Lord, I want your forgiveness. I want your redemption. I want reconciliation between me and you. I want to walk with you. I want you to be my father. And he will answer that. And he will eternally be your father. And that, in that moment, you become a son or daughter of light, as he calls it here. And I implore you to receive Christ as your savior. You could sit in church every day of your life. These folks likely had the law memorized. And Jesus is saying, Become children of light. We must receive Christ as our Savior for it to mean anything. You know, I'm just closing this idea here that, that we're called to follow him into death and into resurrection life. We should be looking for opportunities to die for ourselves, die to ourselves and live for him, to live with him, to live through him. But the fact is most of the opportunities to die for ourselves, die to ourselves, they happen without our choosing it. In God's good and sovereign plan, he allows hardship. He allows loss that he can turn into his glory in our lives. And what's, um, that's what Mercy Me talks about uh, in their song, Where the Hurt and Healer Collide. And the chorus says, I'm alive even though a part of me has died. You take this heart and you breathe it back to life. I fall into your arms open wide where the hurt and the healer collide. And then in the mindset of following Christ and growing through hardship, they describe the end of all time in their song this way. It says, it's the moment when humanity is overcome by majesty, when grace is ushered in for good, and all our scars are understood. When mercy takes its rightful place and all these questions fade away, When out of the weakness we must bow and hear you say, it's over now.
when the end of time comes, will you be found living your life? Or will you be found following Christ by dying to yourself and already experiencing eternal life? Lord, we all, we, we have inconveniences, we have um, speed bumps to our plans, we have people in our lives that, that um, just don't work according to, to our schedule or to, to our intention or to our desires. Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to look over our week just right now and look back on those experiences with different eyes. Lord, if you are our Father, if we walk in you in the right with you in the righteousness of Christ, then everything you bring into our life is for our good and for your glory. And it's meant to make us more like your son. Lord, I just pray that you give us new eyes to see this coming week. Lord, that you help us to see the opportunities that we have to die to ourselves and to live for you. That you'd set our priorities according to your priorities, that you set our hopes according to your plans. Lord, I pray that you give us the, the joy of, of losing our lives and finding them in you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.